Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Have you ever sat down to watch an action movie from, say, 30, 40 years ago and been so unimpressed with the special effects? The special effects of those older movies are so paling in comparison to today's standards. It it looks like the the airplane that's flying off in the distance is almost like a model hanging with strings. Or you see people riding in a car and you notice by the background scenery that they're not really riding in a car. But in modern films, aided by computer generation, it's sometimes hard to tell what's real and what's not. This is certainly art imitating life. We are living in a time when it is tough to tell right from wrong, truth from lie, fact from fiction. There are more shades of gray now than ever before. We don't appear to have a standard truth by which to judge what's real and what's not, what we are to believe in and what's false. And into this world of not knowing what to believe in, Jesus bursts onto the scene and says, I have come to tell you the truth. That's basically what he says to Pontius Pilate after his arrest. I've come to tell you the truth. And on another occasion, he says, I am the truth. So we can line up our life next to Jesus and see whether or not we're in line or out of line, whether or not we're living a lie or living near the truth. There's a classic example of this in a conversation between Jesus and a woman in Scripture. She's typically called the woman at the well because Jesus is at the well where he meets her. We don't know her name, so we call her the woman at the well. In this setting, a conversation begins flowing. Get it? You know, water, well, flowing. Okay. And Jesus ends up telling her all about her life, uh, the truth about herself, and more importantly, what he came to offer her. Our story is from John chapter 4, and it takes in verses 4 through 42. It's a rather long story, but what I'm going to do is highlight many of the verses throughout the sermon. The Bible tells us that Jesus has been ministering in one area. He's heading toward another. And John says something very interesting in John 4, verse 4. He says, now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Let me tell you why that's interesting. Back then, the Jewish people did anything possible to avoid the Samaritans. They didn't like them. There was bad blood between them. Religiously and racially, there was so much prejudice that a Jewish person would add up to three days of their journey just to go around the region of Samaria. But according to verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. I think precisely because he wanted to meet this person. He wanted to see her life changed. He wanted to offer her eternal life, and that's exactly what happened. He goes through Samaria, and he comes to this well. The Bible says that it's noon, meaning the heat of the day. Jesus is described as being tired. He sits down beside a well. The disciples, in the meantime, have gone to a nearby village to retrieve lunch. Jesus is there alone. Then we're told a Samaritan woman comes out to the well, and Jesus says to her, verse 7, will you give me a drink? Now, this shocks her, not because he's rude in asking her for a drink. She says, verse 9, how is it that you would ask me for a drink? 
you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. And in the scripture passage, it even has in parentheses, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want you to understand a couple of things. First, the situation of this woman. She's coming to draw water by noon, by herself, at noon. Here's why that's a problem. In that culture, yes, a woman would go out typically to draw water from a well, and that well would be outside the village but they would do it in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. They would never go in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, and they would never go alone for security reasons. But the reason this woman is alone and it's at midday is because she's a social outcast. That's what this story is telling us. Here is a woman who's been shunned by her village, and she has a conversation with the Son of God. She thinks they're talking just physical water, physical thirst. But Jesus is beginning to engage her at a deeper spiritual level. He says, I could give you water that would meet your deepest needs. Again, she's thinking just water. So she looks around and she says, but sir, you have nothing from which to draw water out of the well, and it's deep. Jesus answers, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, listen, I have something that will satisfy you internally and eternally. You'll never thirst again. They begin talking about some other things. They get down to the crux of her life. He told her, go call your husband and then come back. Well, now she has a real dilemma. She has a pretty checkered past. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. As this story continues, she appears to want to change the subject and begin talking about worship. Jesus reveals to her that He is the Messiah. Now, by the end of the story, we're not quite sure what she believes about Him. If He is, in fact, Jesus the Christ, the promised Messiah, God's Savior for the world. But she returns to her village and she tells the people there all about this experience and so we're told that many of them come out to the well. Jesus has remained there, and they engage in conversation, and they hear the truth, and they believe in Him. What's an amazing story this woman has had that afternoon. When she goes to the well, she has no idea of what new meaning, new direction, new purpose that Jesus was going to offer her that day. She had no idea how everything could turn around when she's just had the conversation with the Son of God. In fact, the person she was meeting with was God in the flesh. And in this encounter between her and Jesus, there are four truths that we can discover together. Let me share those with you. Truth number one. The truth of it is, I cannot hide my past from God. 
Have you ever tried to hide something from God? There was a story not too long ago of a woman who was imprisoned in Jamaica. She was from Florida and and tried to smuggle in two pounds of cocaine into Jamaica. She tried to smuggle it by hiding it in her hair. The authorities were tipped off when they saw how big her hairdo was. I think in North Carolina, we would just think she was from a small county. The smaller the county, it seems like the bigger the hair. Anyhow, why is it that we believe that we can smuggle our sins past God? What makes us think that we can sneak something by the all-seeing eyes of God, the all-hearing ears of God, the all-knowing mind of God? Why is it that we think we can do that? I guess because we've been trying to do that from the beginning. When Adam and Eve were created by God and He placed them in the Garden of Eden, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Then when they decided to disobey God, they immediately felt shame. Sin led to shame, which led to secrets, which led them to feel that they needed to cover up and try to hide from God like God wouldn't notice them trying to cover up their shame and sin and and secrets. But you know, we try just as ineffectively to deal with the sin in our lives. There are three things we do all the time that are very ineffective in dealing with our sin. First, we try to ignore sin. This is living in denial. The truth is we have all sinned. None of us is perfect. All of us have desired our own way rather than God's way, everybody. So ignoring sin is not dealing with sin. Another ineffective way we try to deal with sin is through sheer determination to do good. You know, every time I make the declaration, I will never do that again. What I'm trusting is my own willpower to make good, good choices, act good, think good from here on out. Can I? Can you? Just by sheer determination, solve all the sin problems in your life? A third ineffective way that we deal with sin is just to indulge in it, give in to it. We repeat the same process over and over until we're empty and guilt-ridden and shamed and lonely. And that's what this woman at the well did. She went down that road relationally, each time with a different person. She just kept repeating the same process. It was like, I can't live perfectly, so I might as well get everything wrong. Over and over again. And when Jesus asked her about it, She simply tried to keep it a secret from him. Don't we all have places in our lives where we try to tuck something away that we don't want anybody else to see? A secret place in our mind, a padlock on our heart. We don't want anyone to uncover or discover it. And so we carry it. And it's heavy. And it's shameful. And we're afraid. And we don't even want God to see it. So Jesus says, bring your husband. She tried to dodge that bullet. She said, I don't have a husband. Then it's as if Jesus said, I'm going to teach you something here. I know all about your life. You can't hide it from me. Jesus knew all about her shameful past. She tried to keep that a secret. She lived in a culture where her lifestyle was considered shameful. 
That's the reason why she's going to the well in the middle of the day by herself. No one else wanted to be with her. But Jesus not only knew about her shameful past, he knew about her repeated failure. And not only that, he said, I know what's going on in your life right now. If the Bible story, if this Bible story teaches us anything, it's that God knows all about your past. He also knows what's going on in your life today. You see, you can't get well. You can't have your spiritual thirst quenched until you're ready to say, God, I admit it. I know I can't hide anything from you. I've got to be truthful about it. Truth number two. Jesus knows all about me and still loves me. The very reason we try to hide our sins from God is because we think that once he discovers something bad about us, he won't like us anymore. So we think, if I can just hide those parts of my life, then God will still like me. Well, let me ask. Does the Bible teach that once God discovers something bad about us, that he stops loving us, stops caring about us? You think that's what the Bible teaches Let's take a look. This story has something to say. There's one time in this conversation between Jesus and this woman that he refers to her by a descriptive term. Now, we already know he knows all about her past. He knows all about her, the good, the bad, the ugly. He could have chosen any number of descriptive terms. He could have used a racially motivated term, Samaritan. He didn't do that. He could have used the phrase social outcast. He didn't do that. He could have referred to her as sinner. He didn't do that. In verse 21, of all the descriptive terms that Jesus could have used, he very tenderly referred to her as woman. Now, if you were with us last week, you may remember me mentioning that that is a term of endearment. It's a word of affection. It's the description that Jesus used in identifying his mother as he would talk to her. So this was not condemning, this was not accusatory. Some people believe that God is just there to beat us down rather than lift us up. Well, this story teaches the exact opposite. Truth number three. The truth of it is, my sin has consequences. Someone has once said that sin is like fun on credit. You know, fun now, pay later. But here's what we also discover. When we sin, we don't get to choose how much we pay. When we sin, we don't get to pick the consequences. We don't always know what the consequences are going to be until we sin. It's kind of like this. Suppose you go in a store and the store has a rule. You touch anything, you have to buy it. Well, in the store, there are no price tags, and you won't know how much it costs until you're ready to buy something. So you go into the store very timid, but then you see something you want. And you say, I, boy, I'd like to have that or do that or experience that. So you have this thought that runs through your mind, I, I know I'll have to pay for it, but I don't know what it costs. And you have this, this dilemma I think it will be worth it. Oh, I don't care what it costs. And so you take this item up to the cash register and you ask with a little bit of fear, uh, how much is this going to cost me? 
then your knees about buckle when you hear someone say that, oh, that's going to cost your reputation. You choose that, that'll cost your marriage. You go that route, it's going to cost you a relationship with your kids. That one will cost you peace of mind. You see, that's what sin is like. It has consequences. You and I must pay a price. We just don't know what it is. How many of you have heard the saying, you reap what you sow? Well, that's from the Bible, Galatians chapter 6. The message translation puts it this way. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's Spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. Would you agree with me that this woman is living the consequences of her sin? All the bad decisions she's ever made, all the good decisions she has failed to make, and what she is paying is a high price for it. She's alone at the well. She's a social outcast. That's a high price. She had broken heart after broken heart, relational disappointments. That's a high price. She's far from God. We would call that spiritual death. That's a high price. At the soul level, she's thirsty, parched, and empty. So I would challenge you to understand that God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. Would it have been loving for Jesus to come along to this woman and say, look, I I love you, but then leave her in that condition, spiritually dead and thirsty? No. He said, I love you right now, but I love you so much that I don't want you to stay that way. That's why he offered her new life, a new life, eternal life, that would well up within her like a flowing fountain of clean, pure water. Well, that leads us to the fourth and final truth. The truth of it is, Jesus is the only one who can provide my deepest need and satisfy it. All through the Bible are people like you and me. We've been described as spiritually thirsty. And all through the Bible, we're told that God is the only one who can quench that soul thirst from Psalms to the prophets to the Gospels to Revelation. We're told that God is the only one who can do it. So if you're wondering how to have that thirst in your soul satisfied, here's the important first step. Admit your emptiness. You simply say, Jesus, I've tried to fill my life every other way, and I'm still thirsty. Can you be honest with yourself and honest with God? Accept Jesus' offer of fulfillment. You admit your thirst, and then accept Jesus' offer of fulfillment. This woman's life had a gaping puzzle piece missing. She tried everything to find a fit, something that would completely fill that place in her life. She tried pleasure, a temporary fix, one pursuit after another, and it didn't do it for her. She tried work. We know she tried work because she was going out to the well to draw water. That was not something you did to bide your time. That was something that you did because you had work to be done. It was cleaning, bathing, cooking, Washing clothes, this was all part of the normal work process. The sad thing was, 
Every day seemed to run together for her. It was so unsatisfying. So work didn't do it for her life. And of course, she tried people, a whole string of them. That didn't satisfy one lover after another. Then on this particular day, she comes out and is found by the peace that fit. That's what she needed. Jesus was the peace that was missing in her life. You see, in your life is this God-shaped void that only He can fill. He's the only one that can bring completeness and wholeness to your life. He's the only one that can quench that soul thirst that you have. He's the only one that can meet your deepest need. And here's the big idea. The greatest need, the greatest thirst, soul thirst that you and I have is for forgiveness for a right relationship with God. We crave that. We need that. And Jesus is the only person who can provide it. So let me ask you, when was the last time you were able to peacefully lay your head down at night, guilt-free, all secrets exposed to God, and discover He still loves you? When was the last time you felt like you had your slate wiped clean? When was the last time you felt like you got a fresh start? If you're like the woman at the well, you may have thought that relationships would be the answer. But how many times you've ever been disappointed by a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend? That just won't get the job done. How many of you have thought, well, I'll just accomplish more. I'll work on my bank account. I'll be financially secure. And that still leaves you wanting. Or you say, you know what? I'll live for the weekend relational pursuits, good times. And then on Monday morning, you wake up still empty. Imagine Jesus sitting right next to you. And He says, I'm the only one who can quench your thirst, the only one who can make you right with God. That's exactly what He's offering you this morning. How are you going to respond? We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.